Shel Silverstein pushed the boundaries of children's literature. He dared to be himself on the pages that he so carefully crafted for the pleasure of his future young readers. He also proved himself to be a dynamic performer with a guitar at his side. In 1984, ten years after his best-selling poetry collection Where the Sidewalk Ends was published, Shell recorded a companion album. He ended up winning a Grammy that year for the best children's album. And right now, we're going to hear the collection's namesake poem. There is a place where the sidewalk ends, and before the street begins. And there the grass grows soft and white, and there the sun burns crimson bright, and there the moon burr rests from its flight to cool the peppermint wind. Let us leave this place where the smoke blows black, and the dark street winds and blends. Past the pits of the asphalt flowers grow, we shall walk with a walk that is measured and slow, and watch where the chalk white arrows go, to the place where the sidewalk ends. Yes, we'll walk with a walk that is measured and slow, and we'll go where the chalk white arrows go, for the children they mark and the children they know, the place where the sidewalk ends. I'm Lindsay Jacobson, and this is Remember Reading from HarperCollins, a podcast where we talk about classic children's books. As we say goodbye to 2019, we're dedicating our show today to the spoken word and the work of Shel Silverstein. Throughout the show, we'll be listening to more poems from Where the Sidewalk Ends. Our two guests will read some of their favorites and share their thoughts about the significance of Shel Silverstein's poetry. Beth Ferry is a best-selling picture book author who loves wordplay, and she grew up reading Shel Silverstein. So I think when you read Shel Silverstein and his short poems, you're like, I could do this too. And I think that's what I like so much about his like conscience of poetry is that it seems accessible for children, that they can read it and say, I can do that too. We'll also hear from Rachel Eisler, who like Beth, grew up reading Shel Silverstein. She's a poet and a high school teacher who's currently working on a series of poems about the classic children's books that she grew up reading. Rachel will share with us how she goes about teaching poetry, and she'll also discuss some of Shell's legendary poems, including Where the Sidewalk Ends. And then he says, For the children they mark and the children they know the place where the sidewalk ends. And that's the sense of the unpaved, the wild place is where kids are going to be happier and certainly where he wants to take us as a poet or a singer. Before we dive into more of Shell's poetry and turn to our guests, just a few quick things that you should know about Shell. He was born in Chicago in 1930, and he died in Key West in 1999. In his youthful years, he had pursued studying art. He also served in the United States Armed Forces in Asia during the 1950s. That's when he started out as a cartoonist for the Pacific Stars and Stripes. Shell was multi-talented. Not only was he a cartoonist, he was a children's book writer and poet, as you know, but he was also a playwright, singer, songwriter, and he scored music for movies. Shell even wrote songs for various musicians, including Johnny Cash. So you can thank Shell for giving the world the hit song, A Boy Named Sue. And for some of you listeners out there who may be unfamiliar with this Johnny Cash tune, we're going to play the first 25 seconds of the song. 
Well, my daddy left home when I was three and he didn't leave much to Ma and me. Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him cause he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Not unlike his songwriting, Shell channeled a multitude of voices on the page between his words and his illustrations. In Where the Sidewalk Ends, he can come across as candid, funny, tender, ridiculous, and optimistic, along with everything else in between. Shell tapped into all sorts of experiences and emotions in his poetry for children, and he also cared about the presentation of his books. He played an active role in the process of curating his poems and illustrations in Where the Sidewalk Ends, and decided not to include a table of contents, but an index in the back of the book. Shell deliberated over what the collection should be called. At one point, there was some talk about possibly not calling it Where the Sidewalk Ends. And Shell considered other titles, such as Scribbles and Scrawls, or Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout Would Not Take the Garbage Out, which is actually the name of one of the poems in the book. But in the end, the decision was to stick to Where the Sidewalk Ends, and we couldn't imagine it any other way. Shell got involved with Harper and Rowe because of the legendary children's book editor, Ursula Nordstrom. For those of you new to remember reading, we've talked about Ursula on various episodes, including our shows about Goodnight Moon, Where the Wild Things Are, Stuart Little, and Charlotte's Web. So if you haven't heard any of those episodes, you should definitely go back and check them out for some insight into who Ursula was and her impact on children's literature. But just to give you a quick idea about Ursula's influence... She was famous for saying that she published, quote, good books for bad children. So let's turn our attention back to Shell with our guest, Beth Ferry. Beth is a best-selling children's book author, and she's going to read a poem for us called Listen to the Mussins. Listen to the mustn'ts, child. Listen to the don'ts. Listen to the shouldn'ts, the impossibles, the won'ts. Listen to the never-haves, then listen close to me. Anything can happen, child. Anything can be. I think he takes so many things that kids are aware of but aren't consciously aware of, and he makes them real. He's basically saying, follow all the rules and then break them. And you're kind of empowered by that as a kid. You know, and all those words mean something to you. Mustn't, don't, shouldn't, won't. And then he's saying, don't really listen to that. And in a way that rhymes, too, which makes it even better. Beth remembers reading Shel Silverstein's poetry when she was just a kid and just loving it. What I love so much about his poetry is that truly, like, no subject is off limits. So his poetry ranges from serious subjects to, like, totally bizarre subjects. It makes life simplify. Like you can read a story and be like, oh, like in five lines, he kind of explained kindness or tolerance, or he could talk about eating a hippopotamus. I mean, so, you know, that's what I think I remember loving about it is just like it was preposterous. And yet it also made sense. And I think that a lot of kids like think that they can write a story because they can rhyme words, which is what I thought. And so I think when you read Shel Silverstein and his short poems, you're like, I could do this too. And I think 
that's what I like so much about his like cautions of poetry is that it seems accessible for children that they can read it and say, I can do that too. And for Beth, the ways in which Shell plays with words speaks to her own sense of writing. Like there's a hug of war. And I think like he plays with words so beautifully too. And that so appeals to me. He's like, oh, he's taking tug of war and making it in a hug of war. And oh my God, is that not brilliant? I mean, I know I can't meet him, but you would love just to meet him and be like, how does your mind work? Because it just seems endless. Like he has this endless imagination that I envy. And we asked Beth to read Hug a War for us. Okay, ready? I will not play at tug a war. I'd rather play at hug a war, where everyone hugs instead of tugs, where everyone giggles and rolls on the rug, where everyone kisses and everyone grins and everyone cuddles and everyone wins. Why isn't that on a big poster in every single school? That's what it should be. Because it, it is. It's so smart. And it plays on words. I like love it on every level. I love it. Rhymes so great. It makes you feel something. And it makes you say, yeah. And it's such a simple idea just to change one letter. And it changes the whole entire thing. And that's like the brilliance of, and that's the fun. Like, that's what I love about wordplay. It like shows how words can be fun. In her own stories, she likes to write in rhyme when she can, but it doesn't always work out that way. It is harder, and it limits you, obviously, in your word choice. Like, you're stuck with words that, you know, have to rhyme with one another to tell your story. So I do think it's limiting, but I also think kids can learn from rhyming when they can't anticipate the next word because they know it's going to rhyme with the previous word. I think kids loving words helps them love to read. I think if they can look at words as endless possibilities and combinations and just combining some words together and alliteration, I'm like such a crazy, like I use it too much because I love it so much. I just love how words, you know, sound like poetry just by having the first consonant sound the same. Um, so yeah, I'm a big fan of all kinds of wordplay. Another poem from Where the Sidewalk Ends that Beth really loves is called Colors, and she's going to share it with us. For Beth, this poem really hits at the core of the human experience. My skin is kind of sort of brownish, pinkish, yellowish, white. My eyes are grayish, bluish, green, but I'm told they look orange in the night. My hair is reddish, blondish, brown, but it's silver when it's wet, and all the colors I am inside have not been invented yet. I mean, right? It's like crazy. It's like perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> and it's relevant. That's the thing. I mean, when, this was written in what, 1974? Is that when this was written? 1974. And you think it's still relevant and it should be read like every day. We're going to hear more from Beth later on in the show and find out how her love of wordplay actually inspired one of her latest books called The Scarecrow. And we just want to take a moment to extend our gratitude to all of you out there for your love of Remember Reading. Your reviews mean so much to us, and they even help new listeners find the show every day. We want to share a few of them with you right now. Here's one from Angry ASL. It's exciting to be an adult finding the meaning renewed in literature of one's youth. The program gives me goosebumps regularly. What? They go on to say, and I'm thrilled by the appearances of new episodes. I would love to listen to them more often. Okay, so here's one more from Hip Nuclear Hero. They say, quickly paced, very professional and insightful. 
It was a treat to hear interviews from some of the authors from my favorite childhood books and also hear the newer writers who discussed how these classic children's books influenced them. Yay, that's amazing. That's exactly what we want. They then say, inspired me to write and reminded me of the magic I felt at the kids section of the library in the 90s. That is so amazing. Thank you guys so much. And thank you to everyone else who have been leaving reviews. And if you haven't done so already, please keep the reviews coming on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We include them in our monthly newsletter. I cannot go to school today, said little Peggy Ann McKay. I have the measles and the mumps, a gash, a rash, and purple bumps. That's poet Rachel Eisler reading the beginning of Shel Silverstein's legendary poem, Sick. My mouth is wet, my throat is dry, I'm going blind in my right eye, my tonsils are as big as rocks. I've counted 16 chicken pox, and there's one more, that's 17, and don't you think my face looks green? In addition to being a poet, Rachel has been a longtime high school English teacher in Baltimore, and she actually taught one of our producers, Stephanie Marudis. Over the years, Stephanie has stayed in touch with Rachel and reached out to her to get her take on Shel Silverstein. Here's Stephanie. Before we launch into talking about Shel Silverstein with Rachel, I just want to give you a little background. I took creative writing with Rachel throughout my senior year at the Bryn Mawr School in Baltimore. Rachel had a profound impact on me, and during that year, she even encouraged me to submit one of my personal essays for publication. A local magazine at that time ended up publishing the piece, and a copy of that article now hangs on the wall in my office as a reminder of how I got to where I am today as a writer and producer. And when I let Rachel know that I was producing this podcast, I found out that she's writing a series of poems about the classic children's books that she loved reading. So it's an amazing coincidence. But let's get back to Rachel right now and pick up where she left off in her reading of Sick. My leg is cut, my eyes are blue. It might be instamatic flu. I cough and sneeze and gasp and choke. I'm sure that my left leg is broke. My hip hurts when I move my chin. My belly button's caving in. My back is wrenched. My ankle sprained. My appendix pains each time it rains. My nose is cold. My toes are numb. I have a sliver in my thumb. My neck is stiff. My voice is weak. I hardly whisper when I speak. My tongue is filling up my mouth. I think my hair is falling out. My elbow's bent. My spine ain't straight. My temperature is 108. My brain is shrunk. I cannot hear. There is a hole inside my ear. I have a hangnail and my heart is... What? What's that? What's that you said? You say today is Saturday? Goodbye. I'm going out to play. This is a kid, a girl rather, a little girl who clearly has been listening, you know, to adults. And so she's got ideas of what serious illness sounds like. You know, it involves colors and it involves specific kinds of hurt like rashes and gashes. So she's got the lingo and then you watch her deploying it. And even when, of course, she fails at being convincing. The poem, of course, succeeds all the more in terms of its pleasures to a a knowing little kid and to the adult, perhaps reading it aloud to the little kid. It's just heavenly. 
As a kid, Rachel says her parents read aloud to her constantly, and she soaked up a love for playfulness around words. And Shel Silverstein poems were part of her reading diet. I'd say the ones that I loved the most were the gory ones, like the boa constrictor, sick and dreadful. And um, even when I kind of reread them pretty recently, I still love those. There is a whole other genre within his poems that I've enjoyed, but I honestly think they're more, (laughs) strangely enough, they're really more from an adult perspective, whereas the ones that I loved were really like the taboo-breaking, you know, absolutely naughty poems, which involved like dismemberment and, you know, killing a baby and really delicious topics, (laughs) which nobody else was writing about. I never had siblings because I'm an only child, but it's a standard kind of scenario that especially when the baby comes, you know, as the older child, you're supposed to love the baby and be a proud big brother or sister. But Let's just say there are definitely moments when if mom or dad or a babysitter looks away, other things could happen. So now that I'm a parent, I read that poem with a kind of dark understanding. But the sheer glee of it is so powerful. The humor, you know, and the burp at the end. I ended up asking Rachel, what does she find enticing about Shel Silverstein's poems? I would have to say the rhyme and the wittiness of the rhyme. And I was thinking about a progression as a child of what your on-ramp might be in terms of being read to and or reading to yourself. It's almost like there's this lineage of Dr. Seuss with the unbelievably witty, more absurd, nonsensical rhymes. And then it seems like it would be a natural thing once you had a bigger vocabulary, a greater sense of irony and censorship. You'd be completely ready for Shel Silverstein because there's this great narrative There's this unbelievable, dark, and wonderful sense of going places no one else will take you, but there's still the rhyme, which sort of makes it safe and dangerous, I think, at the same time. And right now, Rachel is going to read us another one of her favorite poems from Where the Sidewalk Ends. It's called, If the World Was Crazy. If the world was crazy, you know what I'd eat? A big slice of soup and a whole quart of meat, a lemonade sandwich, and then I might try some roasted ice cream or a bicycle pie. A nice notebook salad, an underwear roast, an omelet of hats, and some crisp cardboard toast. A thick malted milk made from pencils and daisies. And that's what I'd eat if the world was crazy. If the world was crazy, you know what I'd wear? A chocolate suit and a tie of eclair. Some marshmallow earmuffs, some licorice shoes, and I'd read a paper of peppermint news. I'd call the boys Susie, and I'd call the girls Harry. I'd talk through my ears, and I would always carry a paper umbrella for when it grew hazy to keep in the rain, if the world was crazy. If the world was crazy, you know what I'd do? I'd walk on the ocean and swim in my shoe. I'd fly through the ground, and I'd skip through the air. I'd run down the bathtub and bathe on the stair. When I met someone, I'd say, goodbye, Joe. And when I was leaving, then I'd say, hello. And the greatest of men would be silly and lazy, so I would be king if the world was crazy. I mean, it's an incredible poem, and honestly, it's not one of the ones that I remember from childhood. And to read it now, I hear echoes of Wallace Stevens in it. It has an absurdity that is so gorgeous and so creative. 
it's like he unleashed in the kind of litany of absurdity of that poem, everything, you know, it's a magic world in which your an eclair could be your tie. And then it's unforgettable, which is pretty much any artist's fundamental desire and is to be unforgettable for their reader or for their listeners. And, and that poem is just, it rocks. Towards the end of our conversation, Rachel and I found ourselves naturally talking about the collection's namesake poem, Where the Sidewalk Ends, which we heard at the beginning of the show. He says, for the children they mark and the children they know the place where the sidewalk ends. And that's the sense of the unpaved, the wild place, is where kids are going to be happier and certainly where he wants to take us as a poet or a singer. In childhood, generally adults are there to reprimand you when you step over the line and figuring out where the line is and what the rules are, especially for some children, is a very painful and continual task. And I think that's the other amazing thing that's I think the compassion in terms of the genius of Shel Silverstein is he understands, I think, he reenacts the kid who's always stepping over the line. And in some ways, some of these poems basically allow a kid to step over the line, you know, as we talked about, like, if the world was crazy or even listen to the mustn'ts. Shel Silverstein was a master of wordplay. And it's what Beth Ferry especially enjoys about his poetry, because she, too, has always loved rhyming and the play on words. Growing up, Beth loved reading and writing. She was an English major in college. And early in her career, she worked at the university near her home in New Jersey, where she certified students for graduation. She never expected to become a best-selling author. You know, it didn't occur to me that I could do it. And I know that sounds strange, because I had always loved it. And then I kind of thought... I never really thought about it. I didn't think I could. And then, you know, I got a job and that keeps you busy. And then I got married and then I had kids and then that keeps you even busier. And I stayed home with my kids. In fact, I never went back to work after I had kids. I stayed home and I was like a big volunteer in all their schools. And then finally, when my youngest was in seventh grade, which was almost 10 years ago now, I was like, you know, I I probably need to go back to work because now my kids are grown up. And I said, or I could try to write a children's book. And I thought that's always, you know, secretly, you know, you have those secret dreams that you don't take out a lot and look at. And I thought, well, that's something that really would make me happy. So let me try. So in 2009, I decided I would try to write a children's book. And then in 2011, I wrote Stick and Stone. And then from then on, it's all been happy. (laughs) Since Beth's first book, Stick and Stone, which was ultimately published in 2015, her career has really taken off. By spring of 2020, she will have had 12 books published. And she's going to tell us about one of her latest books. It's called The Scarecrow. It's a book about like familial love, but also about friendship and how sometimes your friends are your family and you can love them just as much as you do your family. And, you know, sometimes more special because you get to pick them. So I started to write The Scarecrow. Most of my inspiration comes from wordplay or words. That's where I like to write from, where I see a word that interests me, or, you know, it's a word that has cool synonyms, or it has, it's a homonym. Or so when I was looking at the word scarecrow years ago, 
I was like, oh, if there's a scarecrow, there must be a scared crow. And wouldn't that be great if they were friends? So I was really setting out to write an unlikely friendship story between a scarecrow and a scared crow. But as Beth got deeper into the writing, her original idea shifted. The story wasn't about unlikely friends anymore. Instead, Scarecrow takes on a parental role in Crow's life. Because Crow's just a baby and can't fly yet. But I couldn't help but think, like, this is what happens in life. You know, you have a baby and you raise the baby and then you set them free. And they have to go because that's the circle of life, right? But you hope they come back. And so kind of right where I was in my parenting life cycle, you know, my kids are all going to college and it just seemed like such a perfect representation of where I was in life. I raised my kids and, you know, kind of like I did stay home with them and then they all left. (laughs) It's kind of sad. And then you do hope that they come back like the crow did come back and he brought the scarecrow joy. In many ways, Beth feels like the scarecrow represents her late father, and how he truly experienced joy with his grandchildren. But when she reads the story at schools, Beth says the kids typically come away with something else. You know, I think adults are getting something different and kids are looking at it as much more of a friendship story and how you make friends by helping people. And the way that Scarecrow helped the crow, but then the crow reciprocated at the end and helped him right back. And that's what bound them together is how they each helped each other which kids can relate to. It's because you think, who should be your friend, right? Like if you ask a kid, like, who should be your friend? And the answer is everyone. You know, so I think that's what's cool about unlikely friendships is that there's no one person that's the right kind of friend. Everyone has the potential to be your friend. But if someone's kind to you, and it shouldn't be so amazing, but it is. Like you feel this this sense of, oh, wow, like you helped me and you didn't have to. And maybe that makes you a good friend. Writers like Beth Ferry are continually striving to create books that are relevant and can reach a wide audience. And this is something Rachel Eisler is also focused on, as she's among the many teachers out there guiding the next generation of writers. With her students, Rachel takes a broad-minded approach. I think they worry a lot about genre. You know, when you say we're going to write poetry, there's a bit of a freak out. And so I generally have found myself in the last two years of teaching creative writing being pretty agnostic about genre. So rather than saying to them, and now we will write some poems, I really have been pushing them to think more about exercises that are just about aiming to do certain writing things rather than a 14-line sonnet or a poem where it rhymes in some very clear-cut way. I'm really saying, let's not think I'm about to write a short story or I'm about to write a poem, but let's think about taking an object that matters to you and really describing it so that someone can see it. And to echo that point, in the spirit of optimism for the next generation of writers, Rachel is going to read one final poem for us by Shel Silverstein that she really wanted to share. The poem is called When I Am Gone, and it's from the Everything On It collection of Shel Silverstein poems published in 2011. When I'm gone, what will you do? Who will write and draw for you? Someone smarter, someone new, someone better. Maybe you. And I feel like that's really the message in a lot of ways of a lot of these poems is 
you can do this. You know, there's not a sense of the poet as somehow this oracular distant figure who's, you know, genius, but really a sense of the impulses that drive these poems have a kind of, for kids anyway, a, a sense of accessibility. And that poem, on the one hand, it sounds kind of dark and as if he's literally disappearing. When I'm gone, what will you do? And then, of course, the solution is someone's going to draw, someone's going to write, someone smarter, and that person will be presumably some of his readers. Special thanks to Beth Ferry, Rachel Eisler, and the estate of Shel Silverstein's family. And for all you ebook readers out there, Where the Sidewalk Ends is now available as an ebook. Find out more at harpercollins.com. And in addition to Where the Sidewalk Ends, don't forget to check out all of Shell's amazing books, including Don't Bump the Glump, Everything on It, Falling Up, A Giraffe and a Half, The Giving Tree, Lafcadio, The Lion Who Shot Back, A Light in the Attic, The Missing Piece, The Missing Piece Meets The Big O, Runny Babbit, and Runny Babbit Returns. And don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter at rememberreading.com, where we keep you up to date on episodes and we'll send you fun trivia questions as well as quotes to share on social media with your family and friends. Keep the conversation going, whether it's on Apple Reviews or on Twitter. Tweet us at ReadingPod. That's R-E-A-D-I-N-G-P-O-D, ReadingPod. We love hearing from you. Remember Reading is produced by Stephanie Marudis of Cuvenda Media, and Irina Zhurov. And I'm Lindsay Jacobson of HarperCollins. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.